You're listening to an Ancient Future podcast produced by St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. This is episode 12 in our ongoing serialization of John Boddicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments Are Good News. In this episode, John tackles the commandment, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which he frames as freedom for friendship. This is John Boddicher. Chapter 12. Freedom for Friendship. The Ninth Commandment in Exodus says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, just at the point where we might expect a commandment prohibiting the telling of lies, we get something different but related. Instead of commanding us always to tell the truth, the focus is on what is good for our neighbor. Who can rightly claim to know the whole truth anyway? Perhaps the absence of such a commandment is a way of recognizing that any human who makes a claim to know the whole truth has cast him or herself in the role of God and is already breaking the first commandment. Now, I'm not arguing for relativism. Creation has become the way it is and not the way we would imagine or desire it to be. There is such a thing as truth, and it stands in implicit judgment on all our claims to know it. If there is no truth, that would apply also to the claim that there is no truth. The fact that we deliberately communicate with one another presumes the existence of truth. Otherwise, this is just gibberish. That we are creatures of language testifies to truth and our attempts at communication imply our obligation to seek truth even as we sense that it can never be fully in our possession. Further, communication implies that our search toward truth involves community. Everything we say to each other, no matter how trivial or conventional, carries with it a usually unspoken and often unintended implication. That is, This is the truth as I see and understand it, and as well as I can express it. As we speak, we implicitly offer this to our neighbor and expect some response, one that will, by opposition or correction or affirmation or denial, lead us closer to truth and to the neighbor. So it makes sense for this commandment to focus directly on how our speaking affects our neighbor and our life in community. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, gender-exclusive language aside, Martin Luther's small catechism goes to the radical heart of this commandment. He writes, We are to fear and love God so that we do not betray, slander, or lie about our neighbor, but defend speak well of and explain his actions in the kindest way. Now, the evil of slander and lies is obvious, for it means saying things we know not to be true. As for do not betray, I take betrayal to mean revealing the weaknesses, mistakes, and vulnerability we have observed in our neighbor to those who have no need to know such things and who might exploit such knowledge to harm the neighbor. 
Gossip is one form of betrayal, one which tempts us as an opportunity to appear superior to those we betray. Now when Luther turns to the positive implications of the commandment, the insights are breathtaking. To defend and speak well of my neighbor does not mean countering gossip with contrary lies. If I know my neighbor has done something wrong, it does not help for me to deny it when I hear it spoken of. What helps is to insist that she is still my neighbor and that her actions need to be understood in their full context. When in John's Gospel, Jesus is confronted with a mob accusing a woman of adultery and preparing for her execution, he does not deny her sin. Rather, he puts it in context. He says, Let anyone who is without sin among you cast the first stone. When the execution has thus been halted, he offers the woman forgiveness and a fresh start. The point of noticing our neighbor's shortcomings is to help them find a better path without self-righteous condemnation on our part. The commandment not to bear false witness is a call to be free from the judgmental self-righteousness that builds barriers between us. It is an invitation to reach out in honest friendship. Our ability to be a friend grows as we come to understand our neighbor better. The more deeply we know our neighbor, the more fully we can put his or her actions into a truthful context. Only as we come to know the struggles, sorrows, and wounds of our neighbor can we explain her or his actions in the kindest way. The path toward which we are pointed by the Ninth Commandment is one in which the negative things we see in the lives of those around us become invitations to know those folks better, to help them, and to allow them to help us become better, and so to strengthen the community. This can be a community as small as a family or a neighborhood, and as large as our imagination can reach. The freedom it offers is a freedom we can only know through opening ourselves to friendship. When I say help them become better, I have a specific experience in mind. I was privileged to do doctoral studies in the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. This included some seminars, small classes involving students near the completion of their studies. You might expect these to be highly competitive, with each person aiming to prove themselves best qualified for the limited number of teaching and research positions available to graduates, and highly critical of the work of others. And you would be right to expect this, but what I experienced in those seminars changed my understanding of what true competition can be. Each of us took the projects and proposals of the other students as if they were our own. We tore each other's work to shreds, not to destroy it, but to show how it could be done better. Each of us came away with much better work than we could have done on our own. Each of us was the teacher to the others, willing to give our full attention and insight into the other's proposal. These seminars became supercharged competitions to see who could be the most helpful to the other scholars. Friendship as correction, understood from this model, is not being nice, overlooking the faults of our friends and neighbors. 
but taking the risk of offering all we have in helping them be the persons they truly want to be. There is a freedom in this kind of friendship that is far from the constraints of niceness and conformity, but it requires us to be fully open to the others, to understand them as fully as possible, so that we can, as Luther says, explain his actions in the kindest way. It also requires us to be open to correction by our neighbors, to appreciate it as encouragement for growth. Unfortunately, there is a strong current in our culture teaching us that freedom and success is a zero-sum game, that in order for me to win, everyone else has to lose. We see this too often in our sports. Trash-talking is admired, and sportsmanship is sometimes seen as lack of competitive spirit. I do not believe this current can prevail, but it will only be corrected when we are willing and able to understand why so many are caught up in it, and what life experiences have led them down this path. This commandment also has a political dimension. Our civilization is justly proud of its democratic politics. Democracy allows each one of us to be involved in governing as well as being governed. Our political community is open to the exercise of citizenship by all, and that is surely something to be celebrated. However, the form of our political process, the structures through which our democracies normally operate, and the expectations of our political culture contain elements which make the observance of the Ninth Commandment difficult. Once again, the commandment is subversive of our cultural norms and calls into question our pretension to be part of a free world. Consider the fact that both our judicial system and our electoral and legislative processes are adversarial. We expect our judges and our juries to be fair and impartial. That part is good. But we also expect the evidence on the basis of which they must judge to be presented in the most one-sided way possible. The prosecution is expected to present the defendant in the worst possible way, while the defense is expected to impugn the character and reliability of the prosecution witnesses as completely as possible. Our attorneys make their reputations on their ability to do these things. Were they to be seen to be following the Ninth Commandment, it might open them to the charge of malpractice. In our capitalist economy, the common good is expected to emerge from maximizing selfish behavior. In our judicial system, justice is expected to result from maximizing a biased presentation of the facts. In both cases, freedom is seen as something pertaining to the participants only as individuals. Since economic and social inequality means that some people can afford better representation than others, it is not surprising that cynicism about the justice system should be expressed by many. When we look at our partisan political process, the problem is perhaps even more obvious. It is not unreasonable to expect that in our political communities different and sometimes directly conflicting perspectives should be found. Our differing experiences naturally lead us to imagine the common good differently from others. In fact, the existence and expression of these differences often makes us a better and stronger community. 
that these differences should find expression through political organizations, parties, is neither surprising nor wrong. The problems arise from the interaction of the representatives of these parties with one another and with the electorate. When electoral success, winning elections, and holding power becomes the only or even the primary criterion of political success, both the Ninth Commandment and the common good become, at best, irrelevant. Freedom is for winners only and is identical with power, that way of thinking leads us to believe. To the extent that this is a fair description of our political climate, the skepticism and political indifference of a large part of the population is easy to understand, and the freedom of our political community is put at risk. How might the Ninth Commandment help us imagine and move toward a democratic politics in which the common good, not the success of my party, is the criterion of success? I believe that the refusal to bear false witness against my political neighbor, the exercise of the freedom to explain the actions or policies, votes, etc., of my political neighbor in the kindest possible way, would lead toward the revitalization of the political climate and the enhancement of freedom in our public life. A climate of mutual respect is far freer than an atmosphere of distrust and animosity. Again, we should not imagine that politics will ever be about niceness. Debate about matters of justice in our broken world will always call for passion and commitment to the cause. It would be foolish to expect easy consensus in a world of irreducible diversity. But the Ninth Commandment guides us toward respect for the humanity of all our neighbors, even those with political views which seem to us seriously misguided. The freedom offered by a climate of respect would, at the very least, discourage those who seek elective office solely as a way of enhancing their own personal power and reputation, and would encourage others to submit themselves to the risks of electoral politics as a way of contributing to the common good. Finally, it seems reasonable to hope that such a change in climate would lead many of those who have become cynical non-voters to take on the task of participating in discussion and debate, making up their own minds and exercising the rights of citizenship. Would that not make us all freer? You've been listening to a podcast in our serialization of John Boddicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments Are Good News. I'd invite you to consult the show notes where you'll find a link to the web post for this episode. And on that post, we will be including each of the episodes as they're released so that it's easy for you to go back and pick up one that you may have missed. Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments are Good News, is easily available through many booksellers, both online and the bricks-and-mortar sort. And a particularly affordable edition of the book in Kindle format is available through Amazon. Music for this series was provided by Steve Bell. We are grateful to Signpost for their permission to use this music. We're also grateful to John for taking the time to so carefully record these. 
to Kevin Grummet, Larry Campbell, and Bram Ryan, who did a lot of the background work on this audio, and to you for taking the time to listen, to think, to dig deeper with us in these podcasts. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.